This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. If you're a fan of the movie Office Space, as I am, you might remember this moment when Tom Simkowski, one of the guys working at the digital firm Inatech, comes running up with bad news for his office mates. I've been looking all over for you guys. Have you seen this? I know it. I know it. What? It's a staff meeting. So what? So what? We're all screwed. That's what. They're going to downsize Inatech. What are you talking about, Tom? Now, how do you know that? How do I know? They're bringing in a consultant. That's how I know. It happened at Intertrode last year. You have to interview with this consultant. They call them efficiency experts, but what you're really doing is interviewing for your own job. Tom, every week you say you're going to lose your job and you're still here. Not this time. I bet I'm the first one laid off. And Tom, played by Richard Reilly, would be laid off by the dreaded consultants, of course. Our guests today, New York Times reporters Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth, have a new book about management consultants that operate on a, well, much, much larger scale. The book is about McKenzie & Company, a firm that operates in more than 60 countries and employs more than 30,000 people. Bogdanich and Forsyth write that McKinsey, which has enormous influence on business and public policy, presents itself as a company that is values-driven, caring not just about clients and profit, but about communities and the world. But their book is full of examples of McKinsey engaging in ethically questionable work, from helping companies boost tobacco and opioid sales to working with repressive authoritarian regimes, including Saudi Arabia and Russia— and like the consultants in office space, helping many companies downsize, outsource, and offshore jobs and reduce employee benefits. Though McKinsey is tight-lipped about its work, refusing even to disclose its client list, Bogdanich and Forsyth managed to get hundreds of internal McKinsey documents and interview more than 100 present and former McKinsey employees. Walt Bogdanich is an investigative reporter for The Times who's been awarded three Pulitzer Prizes and four George Polk Awards. He previously produced stories for 60 Minutes, ABC News, and The Wall Street Journal. Michael Forsyth is also an investigative reporter for The Times. He previously worked for Bloomberg News, where he shared in a George Polk Award. Their book is When McKenzie Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. Well, Walt Bogdanich, Michael Forsyth, welcome to Fresh Air. You know, there are a lot of management consultants that are supposed to help companies, nonprofits, and government agencies improve what they do. Give us a sense of what makes McKenzie unique. This is Walt speaking. Um, It's unique because they hire the best and brightest and that they have values, a set of values that uh, they insist their consultants, you know, adhere to. They put those values on the walls of each office, and when they come in, you know, they're lectured about that. And what we did is we tried to look at those values and how well they played out in real life. The most important value, number one on the list, which I think got them in a lot of trouble, is that the client's interest always comes first. So what does that mean when you have an opioid manufacturer who's pushing opioids in the middle of an epidemic. That's a dilemma that they faced, and invariably they sided with the client. You write that they hire a lot of young recruits, really sharp people out of business school, Um, and you spoke to some of these folks. What did they hear from McKenzie recruiters that appealed to them, made them want to work for McKenzie? So this is Mike, and 
McKinsey has a very, very strong appeal to these elite Ivy League educated, either MBA students or even out of undergraduate schools. It's got such a marquee name. But McKinsey has something else. They have a pitch uh, which they present to these students that if you join McKinsey, you can make an impact on the world. And invariably, those pitches will include examples of some of the things that McKinsey consultants do. For example, helping fight polio or spread polio vaccines uh, in Nigeria, or maybe even tackling climate change. And that's a very appealing pitch to a lot of students who may not want to go work for Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, an investment bank where it's all about making money. The idea... The opportunity, the chance to have this enormous influence and to make a difference is appealing uh, to many of these students. The problem is, as we write in the book, when they come and actually work at McKinsey, many of those students, uh, those young people, extremely bright people, are disabused of that. And many of them, in turn, have come and spoken to us. Right. You know, you, you write that among the values, besides putting the client's interest first, that the company says that they stand by are always observing high ethical standards, upholding the obligation to dissent, to let people within the firms uh, pass on work they don't like or object to something that troubles them. You know, you know, I wonder if the fact that McKinsey hires smart, idealistic young people was a help in your reporting since those who become disillusioned might be inclined to help you with, you know, internal documents or interviews. Give us a sense of the kind of material that you got that helped you document these stories and this book. Yes, the the fact that they're bright and hardworking and have principles and that's why they came to McKinsey really was helpful to us because, as Mike pointed out, when they see what's happening out in the field – they become disillusioned. They become angry. They may come talk to us. They may give us documents. And in fact, they did give us documents. McKinsey is an extraordinarily secretive company. And I think as an investigative reporter, that's one of the great appeals of looking into this company. It's hugely influential. Uh, it discloses no clients. It discloses no information it gives them. And, and it's not accountable to anyone. And so you have this immense concentration of power and no accountability. And we thought as journalists, as investigative reporters, this is our job to look at accountability. We thought we would look at it here, and we found there wasn't any. McKinsey prizes uh, its discretion, that it protects clients' privacy. And one thing that you write that they do that a lot of consultants don't is that they will are willing to represent parties who are on opposite sides of, you know, a policy or a business dispute or a legal dispute. Um, what kind of issues does that raise? How does McKinsey explain this? So it's been a longstanding policy at McKinsey uh, for many, many decades, um, and they do make this clear um, to whoever uh, hires them that they will they will represent competitors. Uh, so, for example, uh, if they're representing General Motors, they could also be representing Ford or or General uh, or or Chrysler. Um, and so they they this is what they do, um, and the way they solve this uh, is they say they set up internal 
firewalls inside the system. So if you're consulting for General Motors, say, you're not allowed uh, for some period of time to consult for Ford. In other words, those those secrets that you're learning at General Motors or maybe the, the strategy that you're telling General Motors on how to beat Ford, you're not going to be able to go over to Ford and tell Ford how to beat GM. And that restriction is on the individual consultants, right, as opposed to they're saying that you in this role – have to be quiet about it, right? That's right. And and, and the company is extremely stovepiped. Uh, the people are discouraged from, uh, you know, talking at lunchtime, for example, about the client work they're doing. You're only supposed to really talk about your client work, you know, within your circle of, of people on the, the, the what they call the CST, the client service team. Um, but in so many instances in the book, um, you know, we see where there is crossover, that there is information um, that, that, you know, there are certain consultants that work uh, for um, one company, and then they also are working for another company. Uh, Purdue Pharma, the opioid maker, is, in, is one example. The senior partner working there was also working for Endo. Um, so they were working for both clients. But where that conflict really comes to light is the fact that McKinsey's working for the the companies and also the regulators that regulate them, uh, and especially the Food and Drug Administration. And we see this uh, with the opioid makers, um, which has come out uh, in the public, and then also with tobacco companies. McKinsey's been working for, with tobacco companies since 1956, uh, and they've also been consulting recently for the FDA's uh, section that, that regulates the tobacco industry and also for vaping. McKinsey was a consultant for Juul and was also consulting. Uh, it, it was also working with the FDA, again, under the same offices that would oversee vaping and, and nicotine. So that's something that is a, a big part of the book, something we emphasize, this conflict between advising for the companies and the regulators themselves. McKinsey promotes itself and promotes the idea of, you know, survival of the fittest and the free market system. But when you look closely at how they do business, you find in the healthcare field, which is important because it affects us all, that they control or have influence on every part of the healthcare delivery chain. It's one thing to say you're, you're or, or to work for company A and also company B, a competitor. I mean, that affects maybe one corporation's bottom line or the other. But it's entirely different and far more impactful for m- most Americans that the fact that they have this conflict of interest in, in healthcare, healthcare services, where, where companies that have uh, their goal is making more money, um, while also they're advising the regulators that oversee them, that's a problem. Let's talk about some of the specific areas that McKenzie's work raised questions. Um, you cite one example. In 2007, Walmart hired McKenzie to do a study of employee benefits. What were the findings and what was the impact? Well, they found that, um, that many of the workers were being paid so little and the insurance coverage was so scant that many of them, in fact, I believe it was most of the, of the children, were being covered under Medicaid, a program for the poor. In other words, they weren't being paid enough money to buy their own health insurance, and uh, Walmart was not paying for their uh, health insurance to the point where they they would feel comfortable. So they hired McKinsey, and they came to the conclusion that, uh, well, you know, maybe, you know, you need to cut back on certain things. And what was the impact? What did they cut? 
one of their findings was that workers who stayed at the company, I mean, this is what you would typically want to find if you were running a company, loyal employees. Well, what they discovered is that they were making more money than the people that were just hired. Of course, that's the situation. And McKinsey thought that was not a, a prudent way to keep your profits up. So they were recommending not keeping a lot of those employees, high-paid employees, on the job. All right. So you, you always have fresh people coming in at low wages and find other ways to, to encourage those better-paid folks to leave. That's you, correct. You know, you re- both reported on uh, McKinsey's work with Purdue Pharma – whose promotion of OxyContin has been widely documented and the subject of an awful lot of legal action and civil and criminal penalties. What was, what was McKinsey's role here? So McKinsey's been working with Purdue Pharma for – started working for them uh, almost 20 years ago, about 20 years ago. Uh, and McKinsey did a lot of work for Purdue Pharma. Um, and this – one of the issues, obviously, Purdue Pharma – Developed the, the drug OxyContin, which which took off like wildfire, and uh, you know it began to be abused um, in large quantities. And many people say helped set off the opioid crisis uh, in the United States, which has killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. And McKinsey came into Purdue Pharma, and in one instance. Um, was trying to boost sales at the company, boost sales of OxyContin, and used the word turbocharge. Uh, they developed sales programs uh, to, 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 to work with uh, Purdue's um, sales force, uh, to work with doctors uh, and get information about doctors and who which doctors were the most likely to prescribe uh, uh, opioids, OxyContin, in great quantities, uh, and to, to target those doctors. So McKinsey used its smarts, its ability to take large reams of data and distill that and to find a way uh, to, uh, to to target people like doctors um, in order to boost sales of an addictive drug. Uh, that's one thing McKinsey did. Uh, McKinsey also did some work with Purdue Pharma to help develop a tamper-resistant um, formulation uh, for OxyContin uh, as well. So they, they, they do the sales work um, and they also do some of the R&D work as well. Yeah, you know, I think there, uh, there's a question of timing here that matters. I mean, I think in the early days of OxyContin, a lot of people didn't realize its addictive power, partly because it was misrepresented. At the time that McKinsey was recommending that Purdue turbocharge its sales, were those dangers known? Had there already been, you know, questions raised, litigation about uh, these these drugs causing addiction? That's right. So McKinsey's those those magic words turbocharge uh, were used uh, in materials McKinsey put together for Purdue Pharma in 2013. Uh, this is well after uh, the the dangers of OxyContin and the addictive power of OxyContin uh, were uh, widely known. And in fact, after there was already uh, legal action against uh, Purdue Pharma for that very problem and for Purdue Pharma's marketing of OxyContin. So it was well known at that point, and yet McKinsey dove right in. Which is pretty much the same thing that they did with tobacco. I mean, look, uh, you know, opioids, a terrible, you know, uh, disaster, um, killed, you know, now uh, close to a million people. Um, you know, vaping, uh, addicting the next generation of, 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 young, of not young non-smokers. But when you look at tobacco, the most lethal consumer product in American history, McKinsey worked for them for over a half century and long, long, long after it was well known that people were dying from it 
and that the tobacco companies were lying about the risks that people faced in smoking. But McKinsey continued. Despite all of the warnings, despite the Surgeon General in 1964, despite two federal judges that labeled them racketeers or, or liars, they continued to work for him. And I thought it was important to ask them, why? Why did they continue after this was well known and they wouldn't answer it? And, and I'll have to add, too, that so McKinsey only stopped working with the tobacco companies in 2021, last year. Uh, and as recently as 2016, McKinsey was putting together some pitches for work with Altria on loyalty programs for Marlboro cigarettes. And in one slide, which we obtained, um, it shows a mock-up of a loyalty, an app, an iPhone app for Marlboro cigarettes. So the idea being, you know, the more smokes you buy, the more Marlboros you buy, that'll earn you points. And in this particular one showed a picture of a bottle opener, you know, buy some cigarettes and then you can earn a bottle opener. This is the kind of material that McKinsey was putting together at a point when cigarette smoking had been banished from offices, banished from restaurants. It was widely known, um, you know, that this was a killer product. And yet McKinsey continued to work uh, with Altria and other tobacco makers until last year. And I do want to add also um, a point about the obligation to dissent. So McKinsey does allow its employees to opt out of certain work. And there are many employees who have opted out of the chance to work uh, for Altria, for, you know, the Philip, Mo you know, formerly Philip Morris. Uh, the problem is those are usually junior people, you know, associates, the, the, the lower end, you know, uh, relatively junior persons. And what people say, you know, who we've talked to at McKinsey or former McKinsey people is it said that that puts the ethical burden on those very young people. In other words, McKinsey continued to be able to work for companies like Purdue Pharma, for companies like Altria, because the ethical onus, you know, the decision not to, to do that work was put on very junior people. And did the junior people who, who declined that work find that their advancement in the company was hindered at all? So they said that, you know, it's hard to measure that. But what it does is it, it, it excludes you from having the chance of developing a relationship uh, with a partner. It's so important for a young McKinsey associate uh, to, to build strong relationship with partners, with their sponsors, in, in order to get good uh, performance evaluation reviews. McKinsey is famous for uh, the rank and yank system where uh, people are pushed out of the company, uh, their counsel to leave if they're not at a certain performance level. So many, many people are counseled out of McKinsey. And so there's an incredible amount of competition to develop those good relationships uh, with partners, those good working relationships. And when you opt out of work, such as with Altria or maybe with an oil company or a coal company, you lose that chance to develop that relationship. You know, there are a lot of cases in the book where McKinsey advises companies that get into trouble in part connected to matters that McKinsey advised them on. And most of the time you say McKinsey was not charged or included in a, you know, a regulatory action. In the case of Purdue Pharma, they were, were sued and had to pay a penalty, didn't they? They um, paid a penalty to settle the investigations that were into their, behavior, into their conduct. $640 million, right? That's right. So it was a it was a investigations by states, um, states attorneys generals, uh, and that settlement over six hundred million dollars uh, came early last year, early twenty twenty one. 
We're going to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth. They're both investigative reporters for The New York Times. Their new book is When McKenzie Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. We'll continue our conversation after this short break. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. We're speaking with New York Times investigative reporters Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth. They have a new book about the international management consulting firm McKinsey & Company. The book is based on hundreds of internal McKinsey documents and interviews with present and former employees. It presents many examples of McKinsey's work that seem at odds with the firm's professed principles of ethical conduct and social responsibility. The book is When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. You know, you've noted that in forums where high-powered business and academic experts gather to discuss public policy issues, McKinsey embraces the call for action on climate change. There's a big conference in Aspen that you mentioned. Um, is this the, a position that the company takes a lot in its public advocacy? That's right. If you look at the McKinsey's website, for example, if you look at their public statements, uh, you would get the impression that McKinsey is a very green company. Uh, internally, uh, they work to be carbon neutral, uh, making sure that they buy offsets for the uh, – uh, carbon that uh, you know their road warrior uh, consultants you know might uh, emit you know flying on all their airplanes. Uh, when you're recruited at McKinsey, uh, sometimes there's a test, and a lot of times that test has an environmental component to it. You know, some scenarios where you may be trying to uh, to protect a reef or something like that um, it was one was one um, example uh, in, in a uh, recruitment test in a in a placement test for McKinsey. So there are many, many public statements, and the, and the firm has been very upfront about the fact that um, climate change is real and that uh, the world has to address this problem. It's urgent, and McKinsey's also been extremely, um, you know, again, used their ability to analyze data to quantify the problem, to show how urgent it is, and they've taken that uh, to forums such as the Aspen Ideas Festival uh, that's held uh, every summer in Aspen. That's their public stance. But what we found in the, in researching this book is that while McKinsey is very good about articulating the dangers of climate change and the urgency uh, to solve it, at the same time, they're working with some of the world's biggest polluters. And while if that work was, you know, to abate carbon, to, to reduce carbon, to fight climate change, that would be laudable. But in many instances, we found that wasn't the case. So what are some examples of their work with carbon emitters? So one example we looked at was a company in Canada called Tech Resources. Tech Resources mines uh, metallurgical coal. This is the coal that's used in steel mills like the one in Gary, Indiana, for example, to, uh, to uh, refine, um, to smelt uh, steel. And they, McKinsey worked for this company on many different projects. And those projects were focused on increasing the efficiency of the company. There was one study, for example, that was simply called Drill and Blast. Other uh, studies were, you know, coal process optimization. So this was the focus. It was the, the idea of making this Canadian company, which is one of the world's largest producers of this metallurgical coal, uh, into a more efficient coal miner. So McKinsey also works for uh, Chevron, for Shell, for BP, 
for Exxon, and for the last 50 years for Saudi Aramco as well, the world's biggest uh, oil company. Uh, and again, we looked at some of the projects. We were, you know, again, able to have some visibility into, into what McKinsey was doing, uh, even though it's a very secretive company. And the work it was doing for Chevron, for example, looked to have nothing to do with reducing carbon output and everything to do with increasing the efficiency of the company. The efficiency in extracting oil, in other words. To make it a more efficient extractor of oil. You know, you uh, write about a consultant at McKinsey, a young man named Eric Edstrom, who was troubled by some of the work uh, uh, there that seemed inconsistent with McKinsey's public evangelism about climate change. Tell us about him and and where his career went at at McKinsey. That's right. So so Eric... uh, is an Army veteran, U.S. Army veteran, uh, and very passionate about the environment. Uh, after the Army, he went to study uh, at Oxford and to, about on the environment, focusing on the environment. Then he found himself in Australia, and uh, he was working for a competitor, uh, and then went to work uh, for McKinsey. And what he found is that the focus in Australia is from it's a very uh, resource focused uh, place and there's lots of big mining companies there and that was uh, in many ways the bread and butter of of the McKinsey office in Melbourne uh, where he worked uh, and he didn't want to work for companies that were polluters that were mining coal for example uh, but he found that that you know that was the the main focus of of the work there and he being a McKinsey consultant uh was able to take a real close look at this. Uh, and he found that uh, because of the work McKinsey was doing with some of these polluters, that an individual McKinsey consultant, uh, because of the efficiency gains that they gave to, say, a coal miner, was individually responsible for megatons of carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere. This really upset him. He called it out to his management. uh, And when he left McKinsey, uh, which would have been in July of 2019, he wrote um, what I would say is the mother of all goodbye letters of pointing out this conflict here that a company that is publicly so committed to reducing carbon dioxide emissions, so focused on protecting the environment in reality, was actually uh, making the problem worse. That was in 2019. You write that, that that this debate continued within the company, and in I think it was 2021. Is this right that 1,100 employees signed a letter urging the company to change its policies on carbon emissions? Um, what was the management's response? So um, this this letter came out around uh, March of 2021, and it was aimed towards Earth Day, which was the following month. And the the idea was that. Uh, McKinsey, you know, they they were very concerned about the fact that uh, it was very unclear which companies McKinsey was working for, and they wanted to be able to quantify that and to show, you know, to to be more transparent about the work that McKinsey did with some of these big polluters. Uh, and they brought it up to management's attention. Uh, and and there are many people in management at McKinsey who are very sympathetic uh, to the idea of fighting climate change, reducing carbon emissions. But the word that came back um, is that it's these companies are too important, you know, and we would never be able to be effective in reducing carbon emissions if we walk away, if we don't work for the Aramcos of the world, the Exxon Mobiles of the world, if we're not working with them, how can we possibly help them reduce their carbon emissions? The problem with that is that 
it looks like a lot of the work that McKinsey does with these companies is has nothing to do with reducing carbon emissions. We need to take another break here. Let me reintroduce you. We are speaking with Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth, both investigative reporters for The New York Times. Their new book is When McKenzie Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. 92% of people who have used Teladoc have seen an improvement in their mental health. Teladoc's online therapy offers access to licensed therapists right from your phone. Get help with anxiety, stress, depression, and more. Choose the right therapist for your needs with sessions wherever you're the most comfortable. Download the app or visit teledoc.com slash fresh air. You know, the company has done a lot more international work, I guess, in recent years, and there's some really interesting stories in here about that. Um, you know, you write about their, their work in Saudi Arabia. I mean, the Saudi regime has for many years hired a lot of international consultants to help it with all kinds of projects. There was plenty of oil money and big plans. Um, do you want to just give us a sense of McKenzie's work, the scale of its work in Saudi Arabia and some of the issues that it raises? Right. So McKinsey's been working in Saudi Arabia since at least the early 1970s, uh, and a lot of that work has been uh, with Aramco, the the big oil company uh, that is the world's largest oil company. Uh, you know the. The, the big company that in one of the world's largest oil producers. And so um, over the years, the Saudi government – and I grew up in Saudi Arabia myself um, as a child. I, I left when I was 12, but you know, it, in some ways it still feels like home to me. And when I was young, I saw these big grandiose projects uh, that the, the House of Saud, the, the king, was – throwing money at. Uh, you could see it all over the town where I grew up in Jeddah on the West Coast on the Red Sea. And this continued. And this is just catnip for consultants. Uh, and this, uh, you know, the Saudi government ministries, uh, health ministry, education ministry, economy ministry, they needed this outside expertise. Uh, and McKinsey was there, you know, this combination of a lot of oil money, um, this need for expertise, and then these grandiose projects uh, was just really ideal for consultants and not just McKinsey. Um, there were other American consulting companies that are there in force to this day. Uh, one project uh, that is in, that is going on right now is the city of the future in northwestern Saudi Arabia. Arabia, uh, pretty close to the Israeli border called Neom. Um, and it is uh, this futuristic place uh, that uh, is just fantastical, that uh, is, is envisioned, you know, this city of the future where there's no pollution um, and it's a, it's a beautiful place. It's, it's still a vision, uh, but uh, McKinsey and other consulting companies have been earning millions and millions of dollars advising the, Sau uh, the, the Saudi government uh, on this. Um, the thing about Saudi Arabia, though, is that you do need to um, cultivate ties uh, with people who are plugged in with the royal court. Uh, and uh, over the years, McKinsey has taken on um, as uh, employees, consultants, uh, some of the sons and daughters of, uh, of ministers uh, in Saudi Arabia. And because there's so many of these elite Saudis uh, in, the, in the company um, – they often reflect views that are very pro-regime, pro-Saudi pro government. You know, McKinsey's work in Saudi Arabia drew really sharp criticism after the murder of the journalist Jamal Khashoggi. Um, 
It was criticized for some work that it did for the Saudi regime, which may have had a role in identifying dissidents, including one who had worked with Khashoggi. You want to tell us what happened here? That's right. So this news came out just a few weeks after uh, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi was uh, was killed, um, and you know we know, and the, the CIA, U.S. intelligence has said that uh, that the the crown prince in Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, bears responsibility uh, for Khashoggi's death. And so this, this what came out was a slide deck. It's always a slide deck, uh, no matter what you look at it, McKinsey, in what area. And this one now, McKinsey insists that this slide deck was only meant for internal use. What internal within McKinsey? Is that what that means? That's right. Within McKinsey. Um, that's that's what they say. And, you know, uh, McKinsey says they're horrified, you know, if this had gotten out. And certainly it did got, get out because, you know, the New York Times reporters got it from two different sources uh, that were not McKinsey. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about what was in there. So what they were doing is they were analyzing um, basically the influence of some of these big um, – influencers on social media like like Twitter. Saudi Arabia is a big Twitter country. They love to tweet in Saudi Arabia. It's a, it's a, it's a really uh, a big place for social media. Um, it's really taken off like wildfire there. And this this slide deck that they made, that, that a McKinsey person made uh, in Saudi Arabia, uh, identifies some of the influential people on social media that are critical of Saudi policies. Uh, and one of those people, um, who he lives in Canada now, but he had been working uh, with Khashoggi. And he said after this slide deck came out, identifying him as one of the influential uh, people on social media, critical of the Saudi government policies, that after that came out that two of his brothers were arrested. And is there any suspicion that identifying this dissident in Canada who was in touch with Khashoggi might have in some way contributed to Khashoggi's murder? Well, you know, of course, McKinsey would say this, he was a well-known uh, dissident already. Uh, that uh, So it's, it's not clear whether the McKinsey slide deck uh, is what, uh, you know, led to this, this person's problems with the Saudi government. And I will say that, you know, McKinsey would say that they have changed the way they pick clients now, especially in non-democratic regimes. And so, uh, you know, f now what McKinsey will say is that they are not allowed to work for the interior ministries, you know, the police uh, or, or defense or justice ministries in these, these autocratic states. That's their policy now. And that had something to do, I'm sure, with the reporting that, that the two of you and others at the Times have done over the past few years? No question about it. I don't think these changes would have come about if the media had not been looking at them. Right. So so McKinsey does have these new policies, and, and it is a result after all the media scrutiny, including by, by Walton, myself. Um, but there is a problem. In fact, there's a couple of problems uh, that McKinsey is going to have to overcome before this can really really take root. And one of them is the, just the nature of the company itself. It's set up like a law firm with these very independent partners spread all over the world who run fiefdoms, basically. And how can, you know, the 
the center, the, the headquarters of the company, if there even is a headquarters of McKinsey, I guess you'd call it New York, um, how do they control a partner in China who knows so much more than they do about what's going on inside of China? How can they oversee those kind of um, projects or proposals for projects? How do they have possibly understand uh, when, when, when those partners around the world have so much power to say yay or nay to projects? It's really difficult, I think, to for, for a company that is so decentralized to to have a real handle on that. And I think the other problem is that McKinsey's got to feed the beast. Um, you know, senior partners, partners at McKinsey make millions of dollars a year, and there's thousands of these people now. That's a, a huge demand for, that's a huge burden on them in the sense that they have to pay these salaries. And in order to keep paying these salaries, they have to keep generating work. So there is a conflict there between being more selective on who you choose as a client and paying your consultants who think they deserve to be paid as much as any Goldman Sachs banker because, darn it, they went to school. They went to Harvard. They went to Yale. They went to Stanford with these very same Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan bankers. So they should be getting those kind of salaries too. Well, to keep paying them those salaries, they need to keep taking on clients. I guess the other question one might ask is if you applied the same scrutiny to another large consulting firm, and there are many others, um, and you had the same access to their records, do you think you could find similar findings that you could make a similar case? You you probably could. Um, those companies, uh, for example, you know, in the course of reporting this book, um, we've actually done a couple of stories about Boston Consulting um, Group (BCG), which is it's really the main competitor to McKinsey. Not because we set out to write about BCG, but but in the course of looking at McKinsey, we discovered that in fact the real story, or maybe a more compelling story, in some cases, may be with BCG. Um, this came out uh, when we were looking at Angola, for example, uh, and we. We did a story about uh, BCG's work in Angola. Um, I had thought we were writing a McKinsey story, but it turned into a BCG story. Um, and another instance is actually the work in Saudi Arabia, which we do mention in the book that a Boston Consulting Group did have a, a build a strong relationship with the Crown Prince there, Mohammed bin Salman, in his in his office. And so it does happen. But those companies aren't McKinsey. It's it's McKinsey that comes off the lips of those people at Harvard and Stanford. If you're not going to work for Google, if you're not going to work for a big bank on Wall Street, it's McKinsey that's on their lips. And not usually Bain or BCG, although they certainly are, are good second and third choices. Walt Bogdanich, Michael Forsyth, thank you so much for speaking to us. Thanks for having us. It's our pleasure. Walt Bogdanich and Michael Forsyth are investigative reporters for The New York Times. Their new book is When McKinsey Comes to Town, The Hidden Influence of the World's Most Powerful Consulting Firm. Coming up, John Powers reviews the third season of the Hulu comedy drama series Rami. This is Fresh Air. Last week, Hulu dropped the third season of its acclaimed comedy drama series Rami, which stars Rami Youssef as a millennial trying to make sense of his life as a Muslim in America. Our critic at large, John Powers, says watching this new season made it clearer than ever that Yusuf has created a great show, bursting with ideas, jokes, provocations, and genuinely deep emotion. Here's John. Late in the new season of Rami, its Egyptian-American title character is talking with Dennis, a white guy who's converted to Islam. Far stricter in his Muslim beliefs than Rami himself, Dennis vehemently divides the world into things that are either halal 
meaning permissible for Muslims, or haram, meaning they're not. Gazing intently at Rami, he says, only engage in halal comedy. That's just what the show's creator and star, Rami Youssef, refuses to do. Ever since this award-winning Hulu series hit the screen back in 2019, Rami has juggled the halal and the haram to fashion a daringly brilliant comic drama about Muslim life in America that aims higher than almost anything else on TV. Its third season finds Yusuf leading us into murkier waters than ever before. As you may know, Yusuf draws on his own life for his character, Rami Hassan, the millennial son of an immigrant Muslim family in New Jersey, led by his Egyptian father, Farouk, played by Amr Waqid, and a Palestinian mother, Mesa, that's Hayam Abbas. His patriarchal parents favor Rami over his rebellious sister, Dina, that's May Kalamawe, even though she, not he, is the hardworking, reliable one. Rami wants to be a good guy and spiritual Muslim. Yet even as he refuses intoxicants and dutifully prays, he's constantly watching porn and sleeping around. As he vows to change, his friends, devout Ahmed, acid-tongued Steve, and blustering Mo, who now has his own show on Netflix, all think him a galloping narcissist. And in fact, over the first two seasons, we come to realize that as boyish and amusing as Rami can be, he wreaks a lot of emotional damage on those around him. Season two ended so perfectly, with a cruel betrayal and Rami once again hoping to become moral, that I thought the series could have stopped right there. I wondered if there was anything more to get out of watching Rami shuttle between Muslim aspirations and sexual shenanigans. Yusuf evidently sensed this too. In the jam-packed season three, Rami turns his attention away from both God and sex and, to the horror of his parents, gets into business with Israelis. Even as supermodel Bella Hadid joins the cast, Yusuf deals with tricky topics that American shows usually skirt, including abortion and Palestine. And he does it all in a show that's funny. Here, Rami responds goofily when his Israeli contact says that Arabs and Jews have deep affinities. Our traditions have a lot in common. Yeah, I've, I've always felt that, that we share this deep Christmaslessness, you know? Huh? Like, uh, like not celebrating Christmas, right? Like, like the whole country, this whole country is like worshiping Santa, and and we're like, no, I don't like something. This doesn't feel right, you know. Mm. I remember being in kindergarten, everyone's talking about Santa. I look over at this kid Ari, and I'm like, dude, we know the truth, you know. We know this is just like a capitalist lie. Like Santa's not, it's not in the texts. Like none of them, none of the, none of the testaments. Over there, we have conflicts. But over here, you see our brotherhood. Rami has been rightly lauded for its groundbreaking portrait of Muslim American life from the inside. Interested in everyone, Yusuf devotes whole episodes to both of Rami's parents, who are disappointed in their hopes for a grander life in America, to his sister, who's tormented by Islam's values, and to his bullying uncle Nassim, that's late Nakli, a coarse anti-Semite and misogynist who has sex with men but refuses to think he's gay. The show sets out to transcend cliches about Muslim American life and reveal its vast range, giving us devout doctors, porn stars, hard-working immigrants, and charismatic Sufi leaders like the one majestically played in season two by Mahershala Ali. Season three takes us overseas to depict an Egypt far different to the one Westerners normally see 
gets Rami stuck at a checkpoint in Israel, and drops us into a gaudy Muslim expo in New Jersey, where everyone from jewelers to media-savvy imams are working to rake in the dough. Yusuf keeps pushing into places nobody else has gone. His season one episode on 9-11 is the best thing I've seen on being a Muslim in America after the attacks. It's in this episode that Rami meets his truth-telling friend Steve, wheelchair-bound with muscular dystrophy. He's played by comedian Steve Way, who has the disease. They bond when Steve jokingly greets him as terrorist. Rami and Steve's scenes throughout the series bristle with the fearless honesty that's startling. Yusuf's boldness doesn't falter in season three. Even as Rami grows increasingly unlikable, his family appears to be falling apart, with Farouk, Mesa, and Dina each being swallowed up by confusion and feelings of failure. You wonder whether the series will wind up being a traditional comedy, in which order is restored to a chaotic world, or is turning into a slow-motion tragedy, in which everything that felt solid when the series began implodes. It's one measure of Rami's richness and complexity that even in this new season's finale, we still can't be sure. John Powers reviewed the Hulu series Rami. On tomorrow's show, actor, writer, and performer Rachel Bloom, best known for starring in and co-creating the Emmy Award-winning show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, she has a new memoir called I Want to Be Where the Normal People Are. And she stars in the new Hulu series Reboot, about writers and cast members rebooting a family sitcom from the early 2000s. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering support from Al Banks. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Bea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. <laughs> <laughs>